0: Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, by a Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. I want my memory, my existence to remain. Unlike an intron of history, I will be remembered as an exon. That will be my legacy, my mark on history. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian, still, and always. (laughs) Today's episode is To Be Remembered, our third episode on Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons of Liberty. As we dive deeper into the big shell, we will look at some of the other major antagonists from this game, Uh, Revolver Ocelot, Olga Gerlukovich, and this third snake, codenamed Solidus. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who SIGINT becomes, we know who Merrill marries, we know the fate of Master Kazahiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. So we took a couple weeks off, but we ended last time with Raiden defeating Fat Man and foiling his plot to bring down the Big Shell. We'll pick up there as Raiden resumes his search for the president. Uh, a cyborg ninja, very similar to Gray Fox, appears before him. Rather than fight, however, the ninja tells Raiden how he can find the president. Raiden needs to locate Richard Ames, secret service to President Johnson. The ninja also tells Raiden the terrorists are threatening nuclear launch, which is why they acquired the football here. Raiden didn't know a nuke was brought by the terrorists, but the ninja corrects him. The nuke was already here. You see, the big shell isn't what it seems. Its actual purpose is housing a brand new Metal Gear. When Raiden asks who the ninja is working for, all they say is, Lali Lulelo. Raiden locates Ames in the core of Shell One, among other hostages. You must be Ames. I did that a hundred times. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, we'll come back to that. Uh, You use a directional mic to locate Ames' pacemaker, and what Brian is alluding to is that you can basically go up to every hostage in this uh, Shell One core and uh, ask them, are you Ames? Are you Ames? Um, But it's a really funny bit of the game. Um, Before we go on, um, I did want to note that in some of the extra material for this game, which is available through the main menu, um, there's an in-universe tell-all book about Shadow Moses, as written by Nastasha Romanenko, who was your weapon specialist from Shadow Moses. Uh, we learned that Richard Ames was working with Natasha, Nastasha as she supported Snake and Shadow Moses, helping direct her as well as pulling strings behind the scenes with the colonel and secretary of defense, Houseman. Uh, it's also heavily implied that Ames had a previous romantic relationship with Naomi Hunter as well. Uh, this was just kind of new to me. I had never dived into uh, the extra content on basically any Metal Gear game. I know they all have a ton of it, but uh, in the past, I've mostly just played the games, and played them over and over again. Uh, but yeah, it's like 300, 400
1: pages. I think that's stuff I read on the wiki, That because I, I, I remember that. So I must have read that on the Wikipedia.
0: Yeah, it's not a, like hidden or anything in terms of like you can find it in any good synopsis. It's just, it's very... I'm surprised I didn't encounter it, or it's just probably one of those things where I learned it and forgot it because I don't think about Richard Ames all that often. Uh, but it does help layer in that everything... That was going on with the Patriots and uh, the American government behind Shadow Moses um, kind of gets a more direct link through Ames, even though the game itself really doesn't highlight it. But um, I think maybe from Kojima's point of view, the game does highlight it because he considers all of it, including the extra material and mission briefings inside uh text, um, all part of the game in some fashion. But... Uh, During this interaction, sorry, getting back to the actual game, we see that Raiden and Ames' conversation is being observed by Revolver Ocelot, making his first appearance since the tanker incident. Let's take a second here to catch up with Revolver Ocelot, who's voiced by Patrick Zimmerman again, except when voiced by Cam Clark in his liquid ocelot mode. Um, Ocelot survived the Shadow Moses incident, having stolen Rex's test data, which he would sell on the black market, leading to the proliferation of Metal Gear around the world. Having lost his right hand to the Cyborg Ninja, he had it replaced with Liquid's right arm via a transplant surgeon in Lyon, France, where the first successful hand transplant occurred in our real world.
1: There's something very funny about imagining Ocelot being like, I was in (laughs) Lyon, beautiful by the river, the city of lights, Paris. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing I was thinking about while I've been replaying these games again for this pod is the fact that Ocelot, except for you know the Phantom Pain, is someone you never really get to have Kodak conversations with, and how fun that would be to actually have the long, you know, drawn out ones like you're alluding to him telling you about his time in Lyon, France or Lyon, France.
1: I wouldn't know it. Imagining him like doing some of the uh, paramedic stuff in three, being like, Do you know, that King Kong is actually a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> well you
0: know it's kind of borne out by the latest uh film but uh no spoilers here monkey versus lizard snake
1: <laughs> who will win
0: <laughs> i i think snake favors the ape well actually you know he has ties to both uh he may like godzilla yeah he doesn't
1: like apes we know this especially when they escape
0: he hates that <laughs> oh get those damn apes uh so Ocelot also in this time would hook up with George Sears, former U.S. president, as well as Sergei Gerlukovich, uh, who we met in the tanker incident as well. Uh, Ocelot orchestrated the reacquisition of Metal Gear Ray for the Patriots in that tanker incident while framing Solid Snake for the whole affair and setting up the conditions for uh, building this new weapon to surpass Metal Gear. He murdered Scott Dolph, father to Fortune, and his old comrade Sergei, father to Olga, uh, all during this. The whole only hitch in all of this pl- uh, plotting was that when Oslot came face to face with Solid Snake, his right arm seemed to possess the rest of him as Liquid Snake's voice emerged from the old gunslinger's mouth. Following the tanker incident, Oslot would then conspire with Sears and the members of Dead Cell to bring about Big Shell, uh, which we're playing through now. In truth, at least for the time being, he is a Patriot sleeper agent and mostly involved to make sure everything goes to plan. While you never fight him in this game directly, his prominence has continued to escalate in the series, from one of the initial bosses in the first game to puppeteer and possible big, big bat by the events of two. Ocelot was originally conceived to have a prosthesis arm before deciding to go with this liquid storyline, and original versions of this game had him dying
1: at Snake's hand. It's kind of hard to talk about him in this game, because everything... It's one of the negatives. The real negatives of four is that all the Ocelot stuff in this is basically retconned and wiped away. So like, you kind of have to just wait for the, his storyline to end in four. And like, listen, Liquid Ocelot's the best part about *Gears of Four. I think most people agree with that. But like, it makes it hard to talk about him in two because he's just he's just doing plot. He doesn't there's nothing else really there with him. It's all plot stuff happening, and so like, he's relegated from cool supporting and tag it like that boss character to just sort of plot experience or, like he just is around for all the stuff, all the story to have. And that's it. But yeah. Really not much else to talk about with him in this game. Just doing, you just kind of say what happens to him and then you move on. It's kind of disappointing. I
0: was actually thinking in a way it echoes the first game in that uh, you obviously, face-down Ocelot very early in the game. You don't actually fight him in any meaningful sense. but um, And then he kind of just basically goes off stage. He pops up for this scene with Ames. Um, then he kind of disappears, reappears for the tor- torture scene. But um, he's definitely not the focus of this game as much as he's really the only one who knows what's going on um, and has any semblance of control. Um, and I think that's, you know, he's kind of really there for the reveals at the end, I'd say, more than anything right now. Um, he's playing his role, but he might be the one who's only... Who's knowingly playing his role, whereas everyone else is kind of fooled in by this Patriots plan and the S3 and all that stuff. But
1: uh, I would say Solidus isn't, but he's sort of trapped. So
0: Yeah, yeah. And Solidus is a legitimate threat to the Patriots. as much. I'm as glad he, you
1: said that Ocelot's the only one who knows what's going on and has control because uh, Solidus definitely knows what's going on, but he's just sort of stuck and trying to find a way to not be killed at the end of it.
0: Yes, and I do think the Patriots do view Solidus as a threat, regardless of how much of this is simulation and them testing their controls. Um, having, you know, the, the the colonel seems really convinced that Ryden needs to kill Solidus here and now because, you know, the son of Big Boss can beat
1: them or theoretically could pose a threat, but... Real quick, it says a lot about the politics of Metal Gear that the son of Big Boss is the real threat, but like the former president doesn't matter. It doesn't, that's not part of the equation at all. Like they don't give a shit.
0: Yeah, that is actually really funny. Um, anyways, get, coming back to our story, uh, Ames also confirms what Fat Man mentioned that there is no ransom demand. The plan all along was to blow a nuke over Manhattan for its EMP, thus quote unquote liberating New York. While, with Ames, Raiden overhears a conversation between Ocelot and the leader of Dead Cell, the supposed Solid Snake. The two seem to be planning the creation of a new outer heaven. Ocelot also mentions his mental episodes are becoming more common, referring to what we saw in the tanker incident where Liquid's personality came forth from the arm, uh, which must mean he is here. The terrorists also seem to have gotten the initial input for nuclear launch from the hostage president. And in walks Olga Gerlukovich, who Raiden had actually seen just a bit earlier when running around defusing Fat Man's bombs. Olga mentions to Ocelot and Snake that she saw a cyborg ninja, and she voices concerns about whether Ocelot or Snake, or both, may have betrayals up their sleeves. While we're here, let's take a minute to discuss Olga. Uh, Olga's character, Olga is voiced by Vanessa Marshall, and her character model is actually the same as Meryl's from the first game, um, including the same Japanese vo- voice actor and sim- similar visual designs that characters like Snake and Johnny Sasaki mention in these games. Olga is the daughter of Sergei Gerloukovich, Ocelot's longtime ally, and took over command of his unit following Sergei's death, which Olga believes to have been Snake's doing, when in actuality it was Ocelot much like Fortune. We learned during the tanker incident that she was pregnant as well, and we will find out later that Snake and Otacon were responsible for saving Olga when the tanker went down two years ago. At the start of the Big Shell incident, she's apparently in league with Ocelot and Dead Cell, committing her forces to them just as her father before her. And of course, we will find out as the game progresses that she is both the Cyborg Ninja as well as a pawn of the Patriots, with the express mission of aiding Raiden in exchange for the safety of her daughter, who the Patriots hold. And I think that kind of goes back to what you are mentioning, that... Olga might actually have an idea of what's going on here, but she doesn't really have control of the situation in any way because the Patriots are yeah, holding her yeah. daughter uh, ransom. So,
1: Who never shows up again. unimportant character entirely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We have no idea who that is. Um, in fact, uh, they refer to uh, Olga's child as her son uh, more often than not when they talk about it in this game. But we'll come back to that. So diving into the themes and concepts that uh, Olga's character kind of goes from, Uh, she's another character carrying on the trauma of her father, which is very much, you know, part and parcel with this game. Basically, everyone has a daddy issue in these games, Uh, but, you know, she's just, you know, the next in a long line of them. Yeah. Uh, But she also represents motherhood and the future, um, you know, for the children. Um, You know, she's making a sacrifice, uh, not dissimilar to the, you know, the boss in MGS3. Obviously, the boss is much more emotional and impactful from a narrative standpoint. But um, she's giving up her own life for what she believes is best for, you know, those remaining or those who will carry on her legacy or the future, so to speak. Um, and she is, you know, another soldier without a home, a uh, leader of an army without borders, which, um, I wouldn't call her a proto big boss or, you know, anything like that, but she's like a petty big boss, a uh, petty, not in a net de- derogatory way. I'm thinking of like, like petty King, yeah, like a petty King. Exactly. Um, so you kind of see her and she's obviously seems to have control of her men, the respect of her men. Um, she's not someone who's doubted as a martial leader, uh, so to speak. And then, um, as we've talked about, um, a lot of this game is about carrying on the meme or being the shadow on a wall from MGS one. I want to take a second here because I throw the word meme around a lot and we kind of presume that everyone knows what it means in the more kind of academic sense. But just to be clear here, uh, meme is basically a a unit of cultural information or just a unit of information that's transferred usually usually pertaining to culture. Um, You know, religion can be considered a meme or the propagation of religion as a meme. Um, I just wanted to kind of clear that out because uh, it's not just internet memes and shit posts with, you know, the lemon uh, face from The Simpsons or anything like that. Uh, But um, the meme is really just, you know, we talk about genes as a sort of replicator. Memes are the way information is replicated. And as the back part of this game dives deeper into information control, the concept of meme, as defined by Richard Dawkins, is basically the transmission of cultural information, which includes all the changes that happen to that information, the mutations, um, so to speak. So just wanted to clarify that before, you know, we continue throwing
1: this word around further. I think we've said it before, but it's worth repeating. Like, it's its a very different, ironically, the, the concept of a meme has undergone a memetic mutation of its own.
0: Correct and uh, yeah, so when I say Ryden's carrying or you know Ryden's carrying on the meme of Solid Snake from the first game, I don't mean he's you know carrying a Tumblr post that says Snake is dummy thick or something like that, you, or even anything or anything even sort of
1: any, any sort of virality or or anything social media related at all. It's it's yeah. So I've heard the memes also described as, as like social metaphors is also a way to think of them It's like. I mean, that's that's what they exist. Like, that's the image macros that we use as memes. Like, like Leonardo DiCaprio tipping his glass or whatever. That's like that means a specific thing at a specific time, and you can use it kind of interchangeably. Yeah, it's. I mean, the the Star Trek episode Darmok. That's like that's the best way to describe <laughs> what a meme is. It's what, what if a culture could only communicate through experiential metaphor, like it, like, and that uh, requires a certain subtext. Right. That if you don't understand, it's completely meaningless to you. And that's, that I think is where more like this game's interest in memes comes from. It's like, because in a way, I, I don't think Kojima is not fluent in English. Like he can speak it a little, I think, and think he understands it some. But like he is, he, he in his own way is is sort of translating his, like his experience with American culture is, is being translated to him. And he's sort mm-hmm. of bringing that back again. Like, it's it's going through multiple layers here, and it's it's one of the things I really like. It's not all Japanese, but I I really enjoy other cultures, like the way that they filter American pop culture, like how how they how it reflects on them, like how they experience it, and what sort of things they make. A couple of people, it's my favorite example of it because it's a distinctly Western show, and it's it's just fascinating how like. The movie Aliens has come has come to mean, or like it means different things. Like what it means to Japanese viewers as opposed to its intended initial audience. That's interesting to me, and I think that's one of the things that too this game really gets into really deeply. Yeah, in not ways in ways that are not flattering. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, Spider-Man is another thing that has gone through cultural transformation through Japan. Yes. Um, because Spider-Man is a huge concept over there, but it's not in the same way that we associate it with like, you know, Amazing Spider-Man 121 and the death of Gwen Stacy or um, all that kind of stuff. They have their own takes on Spider-Man and the Spider-Man mythos. And you saw a little bit of that in Into the Spider-Verse with, um, uh, I forget uh, what the Mecca Spider-Lady uh, was called. But, um, you know, that's basically what it is. It's replicating a bit of culture. And then, you know, whether it goes through transformation or a perfect replication, you know, there are different ways to do it. But um, I think it's very interesting that uh, you know, Kojima's really into this uh, uh, subject, but it really makes sense when you think about his games. And, you know, we use the words meme or like shadow or phantoms and stuff like that, because that's also the language of Metal Gear. How the word language is part of the language of Metal Gear, because these are themes that you can see kernels of in these earlier games that get fleshed out later on. So Skullface face intensifies. Uh, So we use the words of Metal Gear to help, you know, kind of hammer home our thematic points. But uh, going back to where this all stemmed from is the fact that uh, Olga is carrying on several memes from Metal Gear Solid 1. Like we said, her design is carrying on the meme of Meryl. And that's very much intentional that, the you know, perhaps the lead uh, woman character in the game looks like the lead woman character of the first game. Uh, she carries on the meme of the Ninja Gray Fox, which um, is also carrying on the meme of the hyper-reality or kind of that, not suspension of disbelief break, but kind of an escalation in the fantasy um, going on. And then she literally passes on the sword to Raiden, who then will subsume the meme of the ninja for future games in Metal Gear Solid 4 and Revengeance. So um, we almost become the playing playable meme, um, which I would also say kind of applies to Metal Gear Solid 5. You kind of play as the meme of Mm -hmm. Big Boss, Mm -hmm. um, so to speak. And uh, I do want to circle back to her boss fight. I know we fought her back on the Tinker incident versus Solid Snake and not as Raiden, um, but I just want to mention that it is you know the only required non-lethal boss fight of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it is cool that um, as you hit her with more and more darts, uh, she vis- visibly shows, slows down as she's running around the arena.
1: I like shooting the shooting the lights out is cool. Shooting the tarp, yeah, So like it. It's it's a neat little fight.
0: Yeah, it, there's a lot of. Uh, props in the environment, a lot of interactivity in the environment. And I think it's a little bit of that show off and also get the uh player familiar with the game like you can do these things during fights or shootouts. Uh similar to the shootout you have with Snake a little bit later in the tanker where you can like shoot out lights and see how that affects, you know, enemy targeting and stuff. Yeah. Um and we've mentioned how MGS2 is kind of the Hollywood game. Uh this fight against Olga very much is kind of Hollywood in its own way. It's cinematic. Um, It's uh, Olga's basically like on a stage because she's on a little elevated platform in front of snake. Um, There's a spotlight with the, with the light essentially. Um, And then there's the interactive, uh, you know, environment that makes it feels like there's props on stage. Um, She gives her, you know, big monologue on Americans being all the same. And she even has a James Bond, like secret knife gun, uh, which also sounds very something Final Fantasy-ish.
1: Final Fantasy would not have a secret knife gun, sir. It's a four-foot-long <laughs> knife gun.
0: <laughs> An oversized knife gun, two of them, one in each hand. Yes. Um, but So it just has kind of the flares, um, not like very overt or, you know, to the max, like we'll see with, you know, like, say, Vamp or something, mm-hmm. but uh, you, you see the uh, themes coming through there, so... All right, let's get back to the plot here. Uh, Raiden turns back to Ames, uh, but all of a sudden the Secret Service agent suffers a heart attack, just like the fox die victims of Shadow Moses. Raiden has no time to investigate, though, as Ocelot has taken notice and makes his way towards him. Oslot's about to pull a, put a bullet in Raiden's head until the cyborg ninja leaps down from the rafters. Oslot pulls his arm out of the way this time, but the chaos ensues and Raiden is able to escape. Colonel claims he's not being told all the facts like Campbell at Shadow Moses. Uh, just wanted to throw that in there as the revelations keep coming.
1: Hmm, I liked I liked it referring to one of them as Colonel and one of them as Campbell. I, I like that.
0: Uh, I try I try to be subtle like that.
1: Yeah, that's a good that's a good delineation.
0: Raiden learned that the president is now in Shell 2, thanks to Ames's intel. So Raiden makes his way to the connecting bridge. Here, Raiden finally meets the leader of Dead Cell, who seems to recognize Jack from somewhere, from some other time. The leader once again claims that he is indeed Solid Snake when, no, that is not Solid Snake. Out of nowhere, a Kasatka helicopter emerges, piloted by Hale Otacon Emmerich with Lieutenant J.G. Plisk. Yeah, we'll end the charade now. Pliskin is indeed Solid Snake, who infiltrated the Big Shell on his own, but to what end?
1: Kasatka. I love the way he says Kasatka the whole game. It's
0: great. They do a great job of picking the right like military equipment to have David Hayter say. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really fun. Um, but now that we know Solid Snake is here and has been posing as Lieutenant J.G. Pliskin, we get to pull the cover back on Solidus Snake, voiced by John Seigen, I believe it is. Yes, um, Also known as King and George Sears. Yes, Solidus is the former U.S. president, the one Ocelot had been secretly in contact with during Shadow Moses and... Uh, the tanker incident the word solidus is Latin for solid and refers to the gold coins paid to Roman soldiers the w- Uh, the word soldier also descends from Solidus, tying in mercenaries-for-hire themes prevalent in this game and all throughout Metal Gear. Every game, yeah. Yeah. In terms of elemental matter, Solidus describes the state between Solid and Liquid, transitional or even dialectical in nature. Uh, It reflects the genetic balance um, as opposed to Solid and Liquid. He's the perfect third clone of Big Boss, born of Les Enfants terribles. And just to uh, recap... Solid supposedly got all the recessive genes and Liquid supposedly got all the dominant genes, something that was kind of um, dropped following Metal Gear Solid 1. But the point is that um, George Sears, a.k.a. Solidus Snake, um, is the perfect match for Big Boss, which actually becomes important later in Metal Gear Solid 4. The name uh, Solidus Snake, George Sears, King, all that is a combination of King Isaac Sears, who was an original Sons of Liberty member in 1765, opposing the British Stamp Act. And that group is just one one of the groups associated with the broader meme of the American Revolution. George may come from the fact that two of the last three U.S. presidents were named George at the time, uh, George H.W. Bush and then George W. Bush. And of course the most famous U S president of all time. That's right. Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, oh, (laughs) Barack Obama, which actually might be true if you scale actual number of people who know his name, but yeah. Yeah. Anyways, um, by character design, uh, he's supposed to be this spitting image of big boss who we hadn't really seen in any 3d form at this point. Um, which includes an eye patch though it's on the wrong side. Um, his face is a copy of the model for Solid Snake, but he's he has grayer hair and is paler with more wrinkles. And why he seems to be a little bit older than uh, Solid and Liquid, it's not entirely clear. I don't know if you have any theories on that.
1: I would assume that he's aging, being, I don't know, more pervert, he's aging faster. Or even he was designed to age faster so he could be the president. Um oh. Because I assume... He's supposed to have been born later, right? I think that's the Yes. I I always took that he was supposed to be if he's a perfect clone, how I do I would If he was a perfect clone, why would they do two other clones after, you know? No,
0: I think that makes sense. He and he is born after. I don't know if that's like the next day or like 2 years later, but um it's they say it's from the same project, but they definitely says that he came
1: after solid yeah. and liquid. Because yeah, he's he was installed by the Patriots as the president. Like that's not that's not a theory, that's canon. So It makes sense that he was kind of accelerated, his age was accelerated to be, because Solid Snake, so he's the president, when is MGS2, MGS2 is 2007? 2007 and 2009,
0: uh, 2007 for the tanker and 9 for the big shell. So
1: yeah, so Solid, the snakes were born in the 70s, he would be like in his, let's say late 30s, late 30s, and that's not, I know that's the age is 35, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. Mm Mm-hmm. And, that wouldn't, and even in the late 90s, that would have been ridiculous to assume that like a 36-year-old would be the president. So yeah, I, I think he's supposed to be aged up to look like he's in his late 50s.
0: Yeah, no, I think that makes perfect sense because at this point, uh, if you're thinking uh, where the patriots are, or the people who would become the patriots, they're thinking long term at this point. Um, because at this point, I believe they've acquired all of the Philosopher's legacy, which we'll get to in the next game. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I like those theories. I think the fact that he's designed to be president and also the closer clone to Big Boss means he might be even more of a threat. So I think the combination of those two factors explains why he looks much older than Solid and Liquid. Uh, he's designed wearing an exoskeleton that enhances his abilities. He has Doc Ock like tentacles, uh, which gets carried on to laughing octopus and MGS4 and a P90 machine gun, which is also carried on to MGS4 in the form of the frogs. Um, I'm going to stop here for a second because you know, I love bringing up, Marvel all the time, but I'm actually going to bring up Marvel comics here. Um, In our opening episode on MGS2, I mentioned the George Washington Bridge and Snake leaping off. Um, And now we have Solidus Snake with his tentacles and his underwater base. And it actually started got me thinking about probably the best Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, Spider-Man comic, uh, the Master Planner saga from like Amazing Spider-Man, like 31 to 33 or somewhere around there, uh, which has a very iconic moment where uh, Spider-Man is buried under a bunch of rubble and it's all flooding and he has to lift it all up as he remembers all his loved ones. And, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. So uh, I just, you know, that kind of comes together when you think Spider-Man and Doc Ock and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just love that comic. So you should go read it regardless if it has anything to do with uh, Solid Snake and Ocelot, or uh, Solidus here. Jesus. Um, Solidus would make his bones in Liberia, Liberia in the late 80s, where he would find and adopt Jack or Raiden and train him to be a killer in the small boy unit in the Army of the Devil. I always laughed at the small the small boy unit. <laughs> it's just... It's it's unfortunate.
1: I was in the the little child unit. <laughs> uh,
0: eventually, Jack would get the title of Jack the Ripper and White Devil under Solidus's tutelage. Uh, Jack would disappear after the war ended, though. Solidus would go on and worked in the CIA prior to becoming president. What he idol? Oh, go ahead.
1: No, go ahead. It's just, that's crazy. That's never happened before.
0: <laughs> yeah, n- never would have thought someone going on. And in <laughs> fact, when you talk about one of the. Uh, presidents that he might be named after George Sears, uh, George H.W. Bush, who was head of the CIA, uh, comes to mind immediately. Uh, Solidus idolized Big Boss as opposed to his brothers, um, though he's not quite as magnanimous or heroic as Big Boss was. The heroic levels of Big Boss, TBD, will probably hash that out much later on in this podcast series. Um, he would go on to become the 43rd president of the United States, uh, create Dead Cell, and preside over the Shadow Moses incident. Outwardly, he campaigned for nuclear disarmament and against eugenics policies, um, which are basically the themes from, from the first game. His actions behind Shadow Moses went against Patriot's orders and in hopes of liberating himself and the world from Patriot control um, is why he, you know, kind of instigated the Shadow Moses incident and is now the leading Patriots. the big shell uprising. Um, and then after Shadow Moses, he was forced to resign and went into hiding and joined up with Ocelot, as we discussed a little bit ago. So, let's dive into the themes and concepts behind Solid Snake. Yeah. Or uh, sorry, I keep saying this, Solid is Snake because honestly, I think me and Brian both love this character and wish he got way way more to do in the saga. Yes. At first off, he rep- he's the third son, the true meme of Big Boss, and in that, he carries a lot of the same ideas that Solid and Liquid uh embodied in the first game and we don't want to, you know, just kind of constantly retread old ground. Um, but he is someone who is fighting the times in his own way. Um, his mission here, his desire to create outer heaven, feels a little more fully formed here than I would say liquids does in the first.
1: Game. Liquids is mostly mostly motivated by jealousy and inferiority and just. Whereas Exolidus feels like he has an actual political, some sort of ideology.
0: Yes, I totally agree. And uh, we also... This is the first time I think we really get the... I I think we may have heard it in uh, Metal Gear Solid 1, but we get the concept there can only be one big boss. um, And, you know, Solidus really thinks he's that guy. And, you know, Snake and Raiden exist to challenge that um, title. And we'll get into that a little bit later.
1: I think it's interesting that... uh, Because you are talking about how he's getting the liquid stand-in. Snake doesn't seem to have a whole lot of animosity towards him. Like, it seems like he kind of mostly thinks of solidus is is if not correct then he's not a villain which i would agree with yeah like i i don't think i don't think snake is is would be at this point in time would be even though his his personal goals are more just stopping metal gear in general he's not really super invested in, the, in all the Patriots stuff yet he will be at the end of after the credits of this game um but i think i think he's just more like he wants to stop solidus but he realizes that's more right this thing and he just cuz as soon as liquid shows up you know, it's, it's on site. <laughs> yeah. He's, he goes right after. He just completely abandons Raiden and leaves. Leaves him to fight Solid. It doesn't care. He just goes after Liquid. So I, I. That's one of the things I really wish we got more of is is Solidus and Snake having like any kind of real interactions and relationship. I think that'd be interesting. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, Imagine if he was around at
0: four. How fun that would be. Yeah, um, it, it would have been nice if Solidus somehow made it alive, or you know, more alive than he was. <laughs> in for. Um, I think if I wanted to say try to explain it, um, if you think about Solid Snake's ending monologue about how you choose what you want from the past and carry it forward, um, though Solidus is a clone of Big Boss like him, he had no real relation to him, and he was fine just not choosing to carry that forward. But I agree with you. I would absolutely take like an entire game where it's Solid versus Solidus, or even if Solidus somehow lived on to be kind of a big bad for MGS4, I think that would rock Um Anything to get more of him or if you played as him I think at that point in four I think he Would have been an ally yeah he, he was against The Patriots yeah um good. there's A lot of things because it's Because he does like we said he idolizes big Boss but he's just a little more violent And masochistic I would say but I don't think His goals are necessarily different and we Come to sympathize with the goals of big boss quite A bit I would say um so I don't know but I, th- I think it's interesting That's part of the reason we find solace to be such a Compelling character um you know, he carries on the role Liquid played in Metal Gear Solid 1, but it's not just, you know, that character, but uh, his relationship with Raiden is also supposed to be a reflection of, say, the Big Boss and Solid Snake relationship, or the Solid and Liquid Snake relationship, uh, the way that the, you know, the antagonists and protagonists are so deeply intertwined, which, you know, very common in narrative uh, fiction, but um, just how... in. Intra-link they are and how they're linked to each other's catharsis or growth um, is where the similarities really show themselves. And while we're talking about how Solidus really isn't a, like a bad, bad guy in the traditional sense, it's part of that comes from the fact that he views himself as a liberator. Um, not that everyone who views him, themselves as a liberator is a liberator, um, but he does want to liberate Manhattan Island from patriot con- control. Um, and, you know, that part of that is noble in the fact that the patriots have created a system that
1: govern every
0: aspect of society to what they want. Go ahead.
1: I, I wanna say I wonder if if because a lot of the sympathy we're taking, like you could argue that he is the closest thing to the actual like since at this point in the narrative, like chronologically looking at the whole thing, he's the person who's probably the closest to whatever to the boss's actual goals. Because Big Boss was closest. You know, he he got it the closest. Mm-hmm. And Solidus is basically just copying Big Boss. Yeah. And I'm wondering now, looking. I think I think a lot of our affection for the... I mean, he's a cool character, even if you've never played the games before, or even if it doesn't want, he was, like, cool, like, an interesting villain. But, yeah, like, now that we have this much more context and sympathy for Big Boss, he's not just the bad guy from the first games. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of an interesting retroactive, like, makes Solidus more of an anti, anti-hero, anti I guess he'd be an anti-villain. Yeah, um, I, would, I definitely wouldn't
0: say he's heroic or anything like that, but he's definitely, I would... At, yeah, anti-villains probably best cuz anti-heroes probably a little too much giving yeah, him a little yeah. credit. Um, but he's definitely more in the gray area than just how you might have viewed him following MGS2. Um, so and and that's part of the reason we're doing this podcast is the fact that we can look at how the rest of the series can recontextualize what MGS2 is all about. Um, what is it about? We don't even know. But um, part of the reason Solidus wants to liberate Manhattan Island is because, of course, that's where Wall Street is. And, you know, it's, we're in the century of currency and markets as the driving force of basically all of society. You know, the economy, you know, TM, trademark, etc. cetera. Um, so, liberating manhattan taking it off the grid like essentially with a golden eye blast you know frying all the electronic circuits um that's really his goal here and you can kind of see um we talked about his name uh solidus comes from coin paid to soldiers and you know when you think about mercenaries and child soldiers and armies and wars without end a lot of that exists to drive you know the you know, wall street the markets the economy all that stuff so
1: i mean yeah that's um, that's it. Four. that's in Revengeance. Every game after this is mostly yeah. categorized by how much more extreme the war economy is becoming Every in every game.
0: Yeah, and I think MGS4, one thing I do like is that it uh, dissolves the supposed barrier that exists between the economy and imperialism. Yeah. It just straight up calls it the war economy and the war price and all that stuff. Like, there's no point in having the shroud anymore when you sink into the dystopia of 2014 like Metal Gear Solid 4 did. Um that's a little joke. Um, the fact that Solidus is also named after—the uh, fact that he is an American president and named after actual liberators in terms of George Washington or uh, Isaac Sears or even faux liberators like the George Bushes because they always use the term liberator in describing their invasions of Iraq and all that stuff— um, more George W. Bush. Uh, I don't agree with necessarily George H.W. Bush's uh, Iraq interventions, but I would just say those were slightly different pretenses.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it
0: wasn't a straight-up invasion in the same
1: way. You could tell because that war ended. Yes. <laughs> that, war, that war is not currently still going on 18 years after the fact.
0: And uh, one thing I love to mention, or I love to, you love to see it, is the fact that Solidus clearly has U.S. Army written on his... Um, you know armor and even though we're talking about how he's kind of you know heroic in his own way um i i don't think it's supposed to be unclear that metal gear ray and solidus snake have like us military branches clearly written on them Yes, i think that's very much meant to uh kind of tie into the themes of American imperialism and hegemony that we've talked about. This game is supposed to be about America more specifically than maybe any other game in the series. Um, They're all about America because, you know, we're the biggest empire in the world um, and we kind of control a lot of shit. Uh, But like this is very much tackling American culture in a very specific way, which um, is why I bring it up. And uh, we can dive into the boss battles now. Um, right here, where we are in the plot, where we have the reveal of Solidus and, you know, Pliskin and Mitzi Solid, we get the Harrier battle, which is supposed to be a mimic of the Hind D battle carrying on that meme. Um, it takes place on the bridge between shell one and shell two. Um, but this is also kind of, The bridge in the story where, um, you know, some of the facades are dropped between solid, solid is, and we're really going to start diving into the weird, especially when we start uh, meeting the president and he starts explaining that what's going on is way deeper than just another terrorist incident and nuclear threat and all that stuff. Um, so I really like the fact that this bridge is like a physical manifestation of the narrative turn that's about to come, uh, you get a stinger missile that's provided by Solid Snake to uh, take out the Harrier. Which it almost feels like Solid Snake knows the script here. Is like, oh, you know, fighting a flying war machine. Let me throw you the stinger missiles. This is all in the script right here. You know, I did this before. It's your turn to do it. Um, but I do like the fact that the Kasatka is actually a part of the battle here. Yeah, uh, it's kind of fun to have it flying around. And if you don't hit the Harrier, uh, Snake will be like, "I'll do it myself" or something like that.
1: Which is weird because it's, it's really it's an easy fight.
0: Yeah, it's not hard like, at all.
1: The pattern, the pattern is very easy to, to recognize, and it's kind of tedious that the after the first time mm-hmm. you're just like, oh, I gotta do this for ten minutes. Yeah, there is a level of verticality to it. Um, not
0: just the fact that you know, obviously, the thing is flying above you, but uh, there are two levels to the arena, which might be the first time I remember seeing this in a Metal Gear boss fight within. Like a playable boss arena, there's like actually multiple levels that the character player can be on. Um, There are levels in, say, like the Olga fight, but you can't actually get up on the um, ledge that she's on, so to speak. Um, And I do like some of the velocity with the Harrier, like the way it can shoot from one side of the screen to the other. Um, I think that's kind of cool, just, you know, feels cool, is what I'm going to say. And then later on, we'll fight uh, Solidus a couple more times. First, uh, he's basically the one who's piloting the Metal Gear Rays when uh, Raiden takes on... Yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah, he yeah, yeah, is. You're right. Um, but uh, Or at least he's the force behind it, if not actually piloting them. But, um, you know, this is kind of an escalation from previous Metal Gear entries, where instead of fighting one Metal Gear at the end, and, you know, that's the big thing, here you fight... Dozens, I think, upwards of twenty-five. I think it actually varies on the difficulty level you play. Yeah. Um. And it's you know a pretty enjoyable battle, I will say. Uh, overall, I'd say much better than the Metal Gear Rex battle. Uh, one of the things is you can actually evade um, <laughs> attacks uh, in a meaningful way. Yeah. And you can actually kind of have a strategy of you know cartwheeling around missiles and bullets, and then uh, you know loading up your stinger, hitting a knee, hitting a mouth. And though only one is ever on the actual like character arena space at one point, there are usually two also hanging out in the wind. So um, while you're trying to take out one, there's a couple always just trying to hit you with missiles and guns. So it's a pretty well-conceived fight. It looks really cool. Um, it's in an arena that you, it's hard to really make sense of what where yeah, you are. You're on top.
1: We'll get into that. That's a way yeah. into duodenum.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I think it's a pretty fun fight. Um, and um, I'm going to mention this a couple of times in these upcoming episodes, but I feel like that Metal Gear Rave fight is, um, as Morpheus would say in, like, The Matrix Reloaded, I believe, it's the thinking of a machine. Just send as many robots to Zion to drill and kill yeah. everyone. Um, that's basically what this is. It's just, like, why send one Metal Gear after this uh, anomaly when we can send 12? Like, it's just the thinking of a machine. More will generally out, you know, tip the odds in your favor. Yeah, And... Um, lastly, uh, you have a duel with swords with Solidus to end the game, um, which again, we talk about the Metal Gear fight feeling like an escalation. As I was gonna say, it's an escalation from the fist fight that Solid and Liquid had to, uh, one with swords. You know, guys love waving their swords at each other and knocking them together. Um, it's not quite a new mechanic like it will be in, um, other final bosses because, uh, you do get the sword a little bit before this and you get a chance to play around with it, but it does have unique controls, um, in the fact that Uh, The right analog stick is used, like upward motion will do an upward slash, horizontal motion will do a horizontal slash, and you can spin around um, and do a spin attack and then push down on the um, analog button, the L3 button, or R3, sorry, um, to do like a pokey poke, uh, which is what they technically call it with sword fighting. (laughs) The technical term is doing a stab. <laughs> yes, stick them with the pointy end. Uh, that's what I say. Um, which I, I applaud like the actual design here because, uh, again, this is still a top-down Metal Gear, so to speak, so yep. you don't really have that free-floating camera. So the right analog stick doesn't do a heck of a lot in the game. I think it might control your view at some points. but um, So trying to actually find something to do with all the buttons and all the sticks on the uh, controller is something that... Um, the Metal Gear team, you know, Konami or Kojima Productions and KCE Japan are really good with. Um, we'll see in Metal Gear Solid Three uh, when everything kind of has moved to the two analog stick control. They found good use for the you know D pad or whatever um, beyond just you know it's the same thing as the analog stick. Yeah, but yeah, I do appreciate the idea of trying to get that right analog stick more involved, um, but it is it's hard for me to go back to at this point. Um, especially because you get you get it so end of the game, and I still kind of want to you know run around either with the trank gun or an assault rifle at the end uh, when fighting the Tengu, but. Um, it is a little bit hard to do non-lethally. You're still waving the sword at him, but theoretically you're hitting him with the blunt end. Um, And the reason I say it's a little hard to do non-lethally is just because I think the easiest attack to do is to press down on the R3 button to poke him or stab him. Um, And even if you do that while you're in non-lethal mode with the blade, um, it does count as a lethal kill, as I found out, unfortunately, about six months ago, trying to do a non-lethal playthrough. Um, So, you know, again, A for effort, maybe C to B in execution. Um, It definitely felt a lot easier back in 2001 when I was doing it. I'm having trouble coming back to it now after, you know, 20 years of progression and sword fighting in games. So, Um, And then, of course, that final encounter um, is part of the Patriots' plan. Um, both, you know, because they're testing out their s three plan, which we'll talk about in depth much later on. But also because, as we said, Solidus is a threat to the Patriots. Um, you know, he is a real threat, and he must be eliminated by Ryden. And, um, of course, because everything has to be so dramatic, when you fight him on top of Federal Hall, he, Solidus, falls and dies at the feet of George Washington, who, you know, is one of the inspirations for the character and, once again, centers the Americanness of this entire game.
1: It's really a shame that they eliminated... Because it's hard to tell where you are in that fight. Unless you know that area of New York really well. Like, I think it'd be hard to say exactly where you are. Yeah. And so it's just sort of... You're just on a building all of a sudden, and then you find out you can kind of tell afterwards where you are. But yeah, the, the cutscene they had to take out because it showed Manhattan being destroyed uh, two months after nine eleven. You know, understandable. Yeah,
0: Solidus drops that this is Federal Hall, but I can tell you as even at seventeen years old, Federal Hall meant shit to me.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I wanted to say though, I I, I really like this that. A lot of times people talk about this game, one of the things they talk about is, like, it ends with you fighting, getting in a sword fight with the president on Federal Hall. And that makes it sound like, like, Metal Wolf Chaos, or, like, some really, and it is, like, Metal Gear is over the top a lot, but it's still, this is played entirely like a tragedy. Like, it's not supposed to be this cool, like, maybe the first time, but anytime you play it, like, it's just, I feel bad that they have to, like, these two characters have to fight to the death. Like they've been manipulated into this. Yes. And Solidus doesn't get like the cool heroic death that kind of befits his some of his some of his, of his character's importance. He just kinda of dies. That's just it.
0: When you say it like that, now it's just like, man, this is the same thing as the end of Metal Gear Solid 3. Like, you know, you face down the big bad, but it's kinda of like you have to do it. You know, yeah. there must be a winner, there must be a loser, the one who goes. Oh, now on it's executed
1: will... A million times better, but
0: oh, yeah, yeah, but it's a but the way the Colonel frames that final fight is like you have to beat Solidus, that is your role. Um, and but also the reasons why, like, you do it a like, there's not like a big victory in here, and you don't yeah. feel like righteous in defeating
1: uh Solidus, which you know, again, I'm the way the game ends, it doesn't end heroically, it just sort of ends and it's confusing, and nobody knows what to make of it to the extent that Kojima has to like, literally. Puppet puppeteer solid snake and turn to the camera and tell us that it means whatever you want it to mean. Yes. But yeah, no, I I just think there's a lot of that, especially with this game and with every Metal Gear game, it's like you'll get like those, like that there's a great video game, Donkey Video, where he just like does a does an accurate synopsis. He just says what happens in Metal Gear and it seems insane. You know, that's sort of the reputation of this series a lot, is it's like creates it's a crazy, outlandish, like wild I mean, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure gets a lot of the same thing where it's like can you believe how crazy it is but like when you're experiencing it it's, it, I don't know if it's just the tone or like just because everything else is so good it doesn't really come off like that like Solid Metal Gear Solid 2 is not the ways in which it's over the top and crazy are much more thought-provoking than like like Metal Wolf Chaos or like there's other games like that what i thinking of I'm sure you can think or like uh, Earth Defense Force or like any other kind of like Extreme or like a like bayonetta or something like Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like those games, those are like Japanese action games that have like these crazy this crazy amount of spectacle, like Devil May Cry or anything like that. This is I like Nier is much more like this is more like much more like Nier where it's just sort of strange and depressing and, and like I don't wanna say brutal, but like it's it's played this is played like a tragedy and it's interesting that they, that's how they they went with it. And it's deliberate. Yeah. Like it's not that's not accidental.
0: Yeah, when I think of Bayonetta, I think that um even if you're like fighting demons of hell or heaven whatever it is, like it's always a little bit tongue in cheek and Bayonetta's winking at the camera and um you know, it's playful and it's a um you know, it's a lot different than the way cuz I do think you're right. I think it's the tone. Um I think there's something to be said about the immersion through detail uh that uh goes into these games as well. That's like oh, okay, you know, uh, and I, it's it's really hard to say, but
1: Metal Gear is not tongue in cheek. That's definitely what I'll say.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not.
1: Well, three is three is a little.
0: Mm-hmm. They find their moments to be cheeky.
1: Three's tone is perfect. Mm-hmm. There's some, that's that's the best thing about it. It's the per, the tone is perfectly executed. But yeah, like Metal Gear, Metal Gear is very earnest. That's the thing. People don't. Yeah. I think people people have this assumption of it, at least in this country, as like. Like it's over-the-top action, Japanese action game. Metal Gear is very earnest and serious. It can be, it can be funny. It has room for that, but like Metal Gear is about things that are important. It's not about, it's not like the point of a, of the big over-the-top action scenes in Metal Gear is never to have over-the-top action scenes. It's well, it's to pay homage to Die Hard, but then also like mm-hmm. Die Hard is not tongue-in-cheek. Die Hard is serious while not, while not being like brutal or depressing.
0: It understands it can have an inherent silly plot, but what's actually being told thematically through tone and aesthetic is not, I wouldn't say deathly serious because I mean,
1: the characters take it seriously, yes, that's what that's what I'm getting at. none of this none of this is like right at no point is like Travis touchdown. Is he like, cool, I'm fighting the president. He's confused and fighting for his life and terrified the whole like that's that's how he ends the game,
0: yeah. And I think. I don't know if these themes would sink in or I'd care this much about these games. If it did have a lighter or sillier tone, it almost kind of needs to be played straight. Even as you're like crawling under someone pissing off the side of a ledge or whatever, Um, it finds its moments for humor, but never in a way that actually tears apart the fabric of the narrative or the tone that they're generally trying to go for. And I I agree with you. I think it is a tragedy. Um, You're not supposed to be thrilled with how it ends and you know, lo and behold, here I get to say that this is again how Metal Gear Solid challenges video games as a power fantasy because, again, your big victory feels not like a big victory, but just like the final chapter of Hamlet or the final act or um, whatever you ha- have you.
1: You are not supposed to feel definitely not triumphant. No. I'm a whole different game from Liquid.
0: So, returning back to the story, uh, Raiden takes on Solidus and Vamp in a Harrier, uh, eventually taking them down with the help of Stinger missiles and Snake and Adakon in the Kasatka. The battle claims Solidus's left eye, and as the Harrier plummets down to the water, Metal Gear Ray emerges from the depths to grab the Harrier, safely descending below, while Vamp takes off and runs on water to... Well, we'll see. Uh, Ray then releases several explosive mines into the air, blowing back the Kasatka and Raiden. Uh, Snake and Otacon have to put the chopper down for repairs, while Raiden pulls himself up to the now heavily damaged connecting bridge. Following a bit of a platformer puzzle along the outer rim of Shell 2, he resumes his search for President James Johnson in the Shell 2 core. Once inside, Ryden spies Olga again, on the radio with Solidus making preparations to board Arsenal Gear. Arsenal Gear. Olga has, a set, has set a trap outside the President's holding cell as well, an electrified floor that can only be disabled from inside the President's cell. When Olga clears out, Raiden finds a Nikita missile launcher in the flooding basement of Shell 2 and uses it to take out the circuit board and locates the president. If this puzzle sounds familiar, it's very similar to what you did in Metal Gear Solid 1.
1: That's also like 40 minutes of gameplay.
0: <laughs> it is. Uh, it is kind of annoying having to go down and get the Nikita missile from the basement. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. These games find their ways to extend the amount of gameplay this way, um, for better or for worse.
1: Again, three doesn't really though. Nope. There's not that much of that in three. So
0: replaying three, the only places that you really backtrack are so well built into the plot or yeah. only a couple maps that you're you don't even think of it as backtracking. But
1: we'll get to that's that. why I think I think three is gonna be the interesting interesting one because that's gonna be I'm gonna talk more about gameplay than that because that's that's the gameplay one. Well, I guess five. Yes. Uh but I agree with you because um even
0: block, starting to block out the MGS three episodes, um, you can basically talk about a big chunk of that game without really mentioning the plot. Just say, you fought the Cobra unit, guys. Uh, But the actual gameplay is really what's worth discussing during that part of the game, like the second act or so. But uh, spoilers for our Metal Gear Solid 3 episodes. Uh, Raiden here meets President James Johnson, voiced by Paul Lukather, uh, the 44th president of the US in this world, and successor to George Sears aka Solidus. Johnson is in fact the one who tells Raiden that Solidus was the former president
1: which is great I love that they <laughs> like imagine if okay I don't even want to talk like imagine if say you're in the 90s and, and like George H.W. Bush showed up in a fucking me- mech suit like you would recognize him <laughs> You would be like, who is that? I can't tell.
0: Yeah, it's it's strange because we're both supposed to not recognize the president and not recognize a clone of Big Boss slash the spitting image of Solid Snake. But, um, you know, it's fine. I'm willing to suspend that disbelief, but... Uh, Johnson is surprised to see that Raiden is a man, which has a couple of interpretations within the context of the story. Uh, We've mentioned how Raiden is viewed as genderless and you you can project whatever gender you want onto him. Uh, But there's also the interpretation that Johnson thought that Olga might be the one coming to kill him um, because it's all part of the Patriots' plan. And Johnson does admit that he did enter the nuclear codes for the terrorists uh, for the first time, but now he's having doubts and needs Ryden to kill him before he can confirm the codes a second time. And here is kind of where the story of MGS2 starts to come into focus or out of focus, depending on how you wrap your brain around it. Uh, The score takes a sinister turn, and this is where we get the first real notion of what the patriots are, the secret force behind this country, and through American institutions, the entire world. They are the very law of the land, the rules by which society is organized, and behind it all are supposedly 12 men known as the Wiseman's Committee. The president further explains that the Patriots have orchestrated the entire events of this game, from the sinking of the tanker two years ago, the frame job of Solid Snake, and the construction of Big Shell to cover up the creation of a new Metal Gear, a weapon to surpass Metal Gear itself, Arsenal Gear. Not only is Arsenal a titanic-fortified battleship armed with a fleet of Metal Gear Rays, but it also contains one of the most advanced AI processing computers, which is used to lay out and enforce the Patriot's system of information, and thus societal control. The president provides Ryden with a worm cluster that he says can stop Solidus's insurrection and disable, disable Arsenal Gear's AI, known as GW. George Washington. The president initially was in on Solidus' insurrection, you see. That's why he provided the codes in the first place. Solidus' plan to ignite a nuke above NYC, causing EMP Fry and taking Manhattan off the Patriots' grid, seemed righteous to President Johnson. But then he realized that the Patriots' control over society is far too reaching to just eliminate like that. The president's last order then to you, aside from getting that worm cluster to engineer Emma Emmerich, is to kill him to prevent the second set of codes being entered. Though Raiden refuses, Ocelot appears out of nowhere to kill the president himself. But why would they kill him if they needed him to re-enter the launch codes? While our characters puzzle that out... Raiden heads back into the flooded shell core to locate Emma Emmerich, who is being guarded by Vamp, uh, which is a battle we discussed last episode, the Battle in the Purification Chamber. After seemingly defeating the vampire, we meet Emma, or E.E., Atakan's sister, though they've been long estranged. Just like everyone in her family before her, she was unwittingly sucked into the creation of nuclear weapons. Step-sister, I believe. Yes, yes, yes. Emma has a fear of drowning and has been injected with drugs to immobilize her legs, so Ryden has to escort her slowly out of the flooded basement and down to the oil fence, outside at sea level, connecting the big shell structures. Here we get this game, Sniper Battle Challenge, which we discussed last time and neither of us are big fans of anyways. Uh, but again, we have to clear a way for Emma along the fence as we take out soldiers, ciphers, and mines before Vamp shows up to hold her hostage. Raiden is able to blast away Vamp uh, for the upteenth time this game, but the damage is done. Vamp stabs Emma in the abdomen with a mortal wound. Snake emerges from his own sniping spot and carries her off to the Shell One computer lab, while Raiden makes his own way back there as well. Emma is able to stay alive long enough to begin the virus upload of the worm cluster to GW, but it only gets 90% of the way before the upload finished. The state of GW and the success of the virus is unknown. Our heroes will have to roll with whatever was to, was able to be uploaded. Emma finally succumbs to her wounds, and we, te- and we get a tearful and legitimately heartfelt emotional goodbye as Atakan reveals the truth of how he was sleeping with her mother the day she almost drowned.
1: His stepmother.
0: Yes. Make sure that that's... His stepmother, her mother. Yes. Sorry, uh, it's...
1: It's, wow, I yeah. can't
0: believe <laughs> that I'm mixing up the names in Metal Gear Solid. Uh, they're all very distinct and dissimilar. Uh, but anyways, with, em- with Emma dead and the Big Shell about to be jet- jettisoned for the debut of Arsenal Gear, Hale must return to the chopper and evacuate as many hostages as he can, while Snake and Raiden have a date inside Arsenal itself. We get a great hero shot here of Otakon, Snake, and Raiden walking away from Emma's body, three dudes who have lost quite a bit, but nevertheless, rock on. Snake and Otakon share, again, a legitimately heartwarming moment as they do their own secret handshake thing as Snake com- comforts Hal that he's important and valuable and a hero in his own right, all while the main Metal Gear Solid light motif dramatically plays in the background. It's great. Yeah, it's probably... Maybe after Big Boss doing the salute, it's probably the most gift uh, part of Metal Gear Solid is the secret handshake that uh, Snake and Otacon have here before uh, Snake makes his way down into Arsenal Gear.
1: And again, it really drives home. I was talking about Metal Gear Solid One about how Snake slowly becomes comes to like and respect Otacon. and at this point, at their equals, like they are not. He's not Adacon is not his guy on the screen. He's not his little sidekick. He is, it, it, as far as Snake is concerned, every bit. Like, they are partners, which I think is great.
0: Yeah, you know, Otakon gets to be a hero, and he's doing his own thing while Snake does his own thing. And I was thinking about how, when we talked about Metal Gear Solid 1, we talked about the soldier as a pitiable figure, and that being a key part of the games. But thinking about it more, I think the scientist is also viewed um, as a pawn or pitiable figure in Kojima's eyes. And I think Snake and Otakon kind of represent both sides of the way that our institutions kind of manipulate both sides of the coin. science and the soldier in terms of military stuff, like you said. Um, So I really like that, that they both represent both kinds of realms of Kojima's critique of, you know, who's being manipulated and being a pawn in bigger plans. So um, it's really a great moment. Honestly, I kind of tear up as much as I tear up to any part of any game. Um, It's legitimately a warm moment between two dudes. Like I said, they rock. Um, And it's really cool that they have their own secret handshake because, of course, they do. It's just, it's perfect for them. Anyways, as Hale departs, Snake looks up and says, you can come out now. And out of nowhere, the cyborg ninja appears to take Raijin hostage, but not before revealing that it is indeed Olga, who had bumped into Snake a bit ago, and together they got their story straight. Raiden thinks Snake is betraying him, to which Snake says, I don't recall saying I was on your side, before Olga knocks him out with an electrical blast from her ninja blade. Rosemary calls you to save your mission data, and we'll stop our
1: recap there. It, that, that little bit's great because it, it it proves that, like, Snake is... is We still don't know, like, what Raiden's there for. And as far as Snake is concerned, like, I think he trusts him, but he doesn't trust... Maybe he doesn't... I don't think he knows. I think at this point he understands that the Patriots are responsible for sending Raiden there. And so I think he's just sort of playing it safe. I also really wish we could have gotten to see the uh, Twin Snake-style Oga snake fight. That was probably cool.
0: Yeah, uh, and just like later there's going to be a snake, uh, fortune fight that we don't see. Uh, So like snake is just being a total badass off screen and you're not seeing it, but you know, he's supposedly having encounters with, um, you know, members of dead cell or just members of the terrorists in general. And I assume they're all epic battles that would make amazing cinema. But again, our lens is not on him, but, um, you know, this is basically the end of the second act. And, um, You do have a lot of very emotional stuff at the end with Emma, uh, with Otacon, with Snake. Um, And then you just get this, I wouldn't call it a twist, but just like, you know, kind of a, what's it called? Shell shock moment where all of a sudden the things twist and then you go to black and you have a save screen.
1: It's a second act
0: ending. Yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly how you want to end the second act.
1: I did want to say real quick, I don't think we're going to talk too much about Emma. I don't, I think Jennifer Hale is Jennifer Hale. She's great. I don't really like Emma as a character. I think she's too... I mean, she almost goes. I I wonder if she was deliberately supposed to be because she's not a military. She's not part of the military. And she's supposed to be sort of a inversion of like the tough military woman stereotype that's already forming in Metal Gear. But she just comes off as a, it really infantilized to me. Yeah, she's not a very well. She's not a very well fleshed out character.
0: I agree with that. I mean, they give her a lot of backstory in the short time she's on screen, but yeah, that's the two. The way they portray her they give her way more backstory in a very tell, not show kind of way. And no part does she really endear you to her or what she's done. Um, it's more the fact that, she, you know, she becomes a medium for Oticon to go through shit, um, which is it, like, I want to like Emma, but
1: the parrot is a, is a neat little. Uh, yes. Her little parrot is a cool little gimmick though. And results in a legitimately sad scene where it starts saying Hal's name. He can't, he has to try and, hold himself together during that, which is, again, legitimately sad. But it's sad because it's 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 kind going through something, and that's nothing to do with her as a character.
0: Right. You're not mourning Emma, per se, um, which is, you know, something that, you know, I don't feel great about. I think it's a very plot-device woman character, and we want to really avoid those. They should have more I don't want to say purpose, but they should have more to them in general.
1: And you don't see that many of them in Metal Gear, honestly.
0: No, you don't. Like, this is one of the few that I consider a weak woman character in the games. Uh, And you know, probably, I don't want to say the worst, but maybe the worst. Um, Unless you count all the Beauty and the Beast core, because then I could put them all below Emma. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But yeah, no, I think it's it's interesting. I did want to mention that again. Emma Emmerich EE. That's supposed to be a little Easter egg to the Emotion Engine, which is like the main processing chip of the PlayStation Two that Kojima was in love with, and that makes the PlayStation Two a you know a powerhouse of multimedia, or at least it was when it came out, and you know is still one of the best-selling video game systems of all time. Not that I'm plugging the PlayStation Two, but
1: I also just realized um, you said EE is an Easter egg that would also be
0: oh. <laughs> Ee e is, geez. Okay, I can t- I can uh, assure the audience that one is completely by accident. Uh, most of my puns are deliberate, but that's like the point zero zero one percent that isn't. But um, any other last thoughts on this portion of Metal Gear Solid Two? Um, I'll also allow you to speak more on Solidus because we love speaking about Solidus.
1: I mean, we can, I kind of said all I want about Solidus, uh, just that John Cygan is a very good voice actor, and I'm sad that he's not. I don't know. He's just still alive. He isn't. I don't. He may not be. He's not. He hasn't done anything in a long time. And I wish he would come back because he has a cool voice. Yes, I'm. I like that. Despite all these characters being clones of
0: Big Boss, only Solid Snake sounds the same as Big Boss. Um, I'm glad they you know went different routes for uh, Liquid and Solidus.
1: Also, I, I'd be remiss not to mention that John Slagin is does a great job as Candorus in Knights nice of World Book One and Knights nice of World Book Two. There you go. The best Mandalorian character in all of Star Wars. Oh. Oh, the gauntlet is thrown down. I
0: have not played Knights of the Old Republic, um, either of them, though I know that you ranked some of the voice performances recently as some of the best all-time in video games, uh, at least towards your experience. so um, I definitely want to get on that. Did they say they were going to make a Switch remaster of them, or did I just make that up?
1: I think they're supposed to support them at some point this year, yeah. They're kind of hard to... They're kind of hard to play now. Like, on Steam, they're not super Yeah, I'm hoping for a Switchboard. That'd be great. Yeah, that's what I need, especially because I do zero gaming on the computer. Jack, listen to me. We're all
0: born with an expiration date. No one lasts forever. Life is nothing but a grace period for turning the best of our genetic material into the next generation. With that, we'll call that mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcast sans frontiers at gmail.com and at podsansfront on twitter.com. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I don't even want to say it, I'm sad. RIP right, solidus. <laughs> go off, go off, pimp. Uh, shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, you can't say goodbye to yesterday. I
1: refuse to fly.
0: I can't say goodbye to yesterday, my But uh, So that's kind of our spiel on Solidus But uh, before we uh, wind down this episode We'll kind of catch you up a little more on the plot uh, So we can dive into the ending uh, next time around
1: There's no real easy way to transition there
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, sound editor, feel free to just cut that out